0: Hello, you're listening to the Life Before Trinity podcast, where we delve into the previous life of a student, staff member, or spouse to find out where they saw God at work in their life before Trinity. Um, So we're joined by the Bradshaws this evening, Hannah and Josh, and um, we're going to dive in just as we did with Sophie on the previous episode, uh, digging into the stuff they did um, either before Trinity or in Hannah's case, still does while she's at Trinity. but we're going to kick off with uh, just a couple of questions about what it is that they're up to now and what it is uh, that they've been up to in the past. Um, so, Hannah, if we can start with you. You're currently a head of year at a secondary school, is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right, at a school in Bridgewater.
0: Cool, okay. And what what has that been like whilst you've been um, going through the whole coronavirus stuff? Like, what, What's your involvement been like uh, i think you've been doing some stuff key worker wise What's what's that been like whilst things have been going on yeah
1: been very weird um i think it's not the job i went into so obviously as a teacher you go in to teach students to interact with students one of the main things about the day that i enjoyed was that i did multiple different things with multiple different people and i was never bored because there's always some drama going on um, And you just don't get that. So my day is quite planned. And um, I'm mainly working from home. So I've been into school about five times to do key worker um, things. But because our school is all through from a young age all the way to 16, we've got very mixed classes from primary and secondary mixed in. We've got a massive staff team, so I don't actually have to be in very often. It's not a normal day. You're not really teaching them. You're outside in the sun quite a lot, which is great, but it's not teaching. So at home, I've been doing a lot of phone calls to parents. I'm ahead of year, so trying to keep my year 10s on track and keeping contact with parents, especially of more vulnerable families. Um, So actually, the positive of coronavirus is I think my relationship with parents is so much better than it ever was because I'm talking to them weekly and some of them I might be the only other voice they talk to other than children or their families. Um, So that's been really, really great, but I'm, I'm a bit bored now because i don't have the teenage drama which i thought i missed but i do i want someone to tell me that they've fallen out with their friend
2: (laughs) i've tried my best but i
0: just can't (laughs) cut it (laughs) i wonder how long that feeling will last once you get back. um and and if you if you're anything like me so um back when i was doing youth work stuff in exeter we used to help out with pshe stuff at a, a secondary school near us and one day of actually it wasn't even a whole day it was up until lunchtime for PSHE um with like year 10 and I'm I'm done like I I I, I couldn't go on for the rest of the day I'd need to go home and like eat some smarties or something to like pack myself back up (laughs) or, or lie down for quite a long time like what what is it about teaching that um I guess two questions really what what is it about that job that keeps you coming back when nobody other than teachers really know how hard that job is? um so what is it that keeps you coming back and then also how does your faith fit into that job because you're you're not in a church school are you
1: no no my school is very i think yeah i'll I'll, I'll do the questions the other way around because i think of what keeps me coming back is what god's done to get me there that makes
0: way more sense (laughs) so i think the other way around
1: so um Yeah, I left university and um, I felt called to work with deprived families. That was my call that I felt God put on my life. Um, But I also felt quite called into teaching. And there was a lot of questions about what I should do. Um, And then just before I was going to make my decision, Teach First, which is a charity that is aiming to um, bridge the gap between disadvantaged students in education and non-disadvantaged students in education, they do a good grad scheme um, and they move to the southwest so I also felt cool to stay in the southwest so that all patched it together so I felt God call me into teaching especially in a more deprived area. Um, I also love science so that's the subject that I teach and it just fascinates me and I would never get bored of teaching even the most boring lesson there's something in it and the kids don't agree but I really like science and I think it's really fun so it's interesting being able to do my cool the thing that God's called me to do, which is work with more deprived families, and yet still invest in my love of science, like that match is just amazing. And then a few years in, um, I basically said to God in the car one day, "I'm a bit, I'm a bit bored, but also I'm not really making the impact I thought I would." Um, and then three hours later in school, the head teacher knocked on my classroom door and just said, "Hannah, would you become a head of year for me? No wow. interview, no asking, no." Whisper in the wind that that might be a possibility, just knocked to my door and asked me mid lesson and just wanted a response there and then. I um, <laughs> wow. was when my year group were <laughs> beginning year eight and they are now nearing the end of year ten into year eleven wow. and so although that 's been really frustrating at times as well um, in all sorts of ways, actually it's the I know God called me into that there 's no sort of doubt in my mind that God says you need to be with these people till they finish year eleven. Hmm. Um, and that keeps me coming back when the days are really hard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And on, it's interesting as well what you're saying about, um, you know, your love of science. Like, I don't know if, I, I don't feel like kids ask so much you know any more about like the sort of science and faith debate do, do kids ever like pipe up and ask you about like but miss you're a christian surely science is this yeah god, that sort of stuff do you get a lot of that i've had
1: a what? few um my favorite question to be asked is um, uh, miss do you believe in god or the big bang theory and it's just yeah. one sort of both and they're like what and then you get to sort of talk about that um And it's an interesting position because you're often in a department, um, we've actually got, I've got a friend who's a Christian in my department and then people who are very much the opposite. And that's quite interesting as well between staff and that balance um, and just, yeah, sort of working through that and students are just generally quite interested um, and most of the conversations come when I overhear them talking to each other and like they're dispel myths and I can just dispel a myth. So they're like going, well, but I don't think this and I don't think this and just going off on rumours and I can just come up and be like, well, that's actually not true. And then you get into quite a nice discussion about it.
0: That's so good. Um, and Josh, before you came to Trinity, what were you up to? Cause you were working for St Paul's in Western, weren't you? And tell us a little bit about what you were doing there.
2: Yeah, sure. So St. Paul's in Weston is a bit of a fascinating church, really. I think we were there for a good few years between the two of us, and I'm still kind of bemused by it and its demographic. Um, So St. Paul's is a reasonably large church and about two-fifths of its congregation are made up of people who are in recovery um, from either drugs or alcohol addiction, Um, which I think just brought the the most beautiful flavour into the church and obviously its fair share of um, chaos and I think also then it attracted a lot of people whose lives were maybe more chaotic um, but weren't in recovery but they're just the comfort and ease that they felt there because of that um, element meant that it was a the most diverse congregation I think I've ever seen um, and yeah it brought I think it's, it was a huge blessing because it brought a real rawness um, and a real openness into the congregation. So I think it, it permeated through everyone who was there that we um, we say how we feel, and and faith is very real, and faith is very raw. Um, but also the church just grew to expect extreme transformation. I think that's what we saw a lot while we were there as well. That um, extreme transformation was was a part of someone um, understanding the gospel, or or. Christ entering their life. Um, so yeah, I worked there as their um, children and families ministry leader, um, which um, I guess, as as you can probably gather from that demographic, meant that that job was slightly different to perhaps it normally is. Um, I yeah, when I was asked to do it, I um, I made it quite clear that I didn't really feel called to um, program orientated children and families ministry but felt called very much to be a to create a safe space for children who were experiencing a very hard life Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a lot of what I did there Um, it involved a lot of extreme safeguarding um, some schools work and the school that we predominantly worked with both of them had been in special measures for a very long time um, it involved a lot of work with children who were exhibiting trauma symptoms and neglect symptoms, um, and that was kind of the, the norm. And then, um, especially in the outreach stuff that the church did, and then kind of, yeah, you were in the minority, really, if you weren't experiencing some of those, those mm-hmm. life issues. Um, but I think it, yeah, it was the most, um, the most gospel-focused the work i've ever seen really in the team in the um in the kids themselves in the kind of in the community um yeah the ministry there was very raw um wasn't it i'd say and hannah hannah did this with me as well um yeah it was good and
0: what <laughs> and how would you describe like western super Meg? because i think a lot of people have yeah. Know, idea of like oh yeah that's the place with like the nice beach and like the tacky fish and chip yeah. shops and you know because yeah I've,
2: sorry i should have probably explained that that's all right.
0: that's all right
2: yeah western it has a fascinating demographic and i think basically how i'd summarize it was it was a a nice victorian seaside town that died when um overseas travel became cheap and um doable for everyone basically or for a lot of people um so it was, it was massively built solely towards tourism and then the tourism dried up and it, it died. Um, and then the, the recovery angle comes into that as well in that it then had lots of large empty hotels that no one wanted to buy, um, which make the perfect site for recovery houses. So there are a lot of different recovery houses in the different streams of um, recovery programs in Weston. Um, which is why there's such a high percentage of people in Western who are in recovery. Um, but also, I guess that brings in the, the edge of then failed recovery. And people who are now have come to Western to go into recovery, it's not gone well, have returned to drug addiction and are still in Weston. Um, so yeah, I- Weston had like a very deprived core and then some kind of more middle class periphery, I guess yeah
0: and and if you were going to give us like uh, without wanting to like stereotype or anything like that but just giving us a flavor of like the kind of people that you would meet that that would that would come through St Paul's but also um come through this sort of recovery stuff because I think just in conversation with you beforehand like we've talked about you know a lot of people coming out of prison ending up in Western Supermare um yeah, yeah like what could you give us a flavor of like what those people are like the kind of issues they're facing i suppose
1: i think it also it is also quite diverse so one of the things i did with school was i um asked some of the people who were in recovery from church to come and talk with the kids at school um about drugs and alcohol and things like that which the kids really appreciated because they said it was actually raw rather than me who isn't in any sort of addiction telling them not to get into drug addiction. Actually, it was someone who'd been through it. Um, But what amazed me was when they told their testimony, they were just so different. So someone had um, was holding down a job, but was also an alcoholic, and then it all spiraled out of control. Um, Someone had gone in from a young age and was manipulated and kind of, ended up in this stuff because of being sort of, yeah, sort of abused as a vulnerable young person. Other people ended up in gang culture and crime and then ended up in recovery. Um, And just, yeah, all together I think, even though all their stories are very different, the one characteristic is that they're very raw. Um, And they don't hide behind a a veneer or a bubble. They're just really honest about how life is and how life was. which makes their faith very honest as well. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, But that can be interesting. So when they walk through the door, um, some families who walk through the door who hadn't quite met Jesus yet, didn't quite know why they were there maybe, sometimes they would just hit you with a story about what had gone on that day and you had to kind of recover quite quickly and be like, oh yeah, that's quite raw. What you've just told me is not what you'd normally tell a stranger you've just met at the door of a church. and work out the best way to respond to them in that situation um yeah I'd say that was probably
0: did, <laughs> did you so were you um were you at St Paul's before Josh took on the children's work job or did you yeah uh, so I was
1: there for two years before Josh was. okay
0: so you like because I could imagine stepping into that role and then suddenly being like faced with all these quite extreme um you know comments on Sunday or trying to get your head around like different people's Sort of chaotic lifestyles, I guess, must be like yeah, must be quite hard doing that off the bat. Um, but the other thing I was asked was, uh, I guess, about the the church leadership because I, I think the thing that I find so moving about St Paul's is that, and you have to you have to correct me if I'm wrong, um, but my understanding is that the guy who leads it was the curate or landed there as the curate like 15 years ago or something um mm. gradually took over and it was just a bog standard like run-of-the-mill Anglican joint um and is now this like amazing ministry which I, I mean because some of your team I say some of the St Paul's team came and did headlined at the um uh, the workshop week and uh, yeah. I think there's probably only like seven or eight of us there but I it was just amazing um but is, is that right that he, he came in as the curate sort of 15 yeah. years ago.
2: Like how, yeah. And, sorry, sorry, go, on. sorry do go on. I was going to say, like
0: how, how do you think that leadership changed that church from just run of the mill, ticking along, Anglican thing to like what it's become now?
2: Yeah. Um, I would say that for me and what, I, what I've observed um, and, and what I know of St. Paul's. the the biggest characteristic that has created that is the willingness to take huge risks on people. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, from, from people all across the board, I guess, even like personally with me to, to throw me in on, um, leading quite a large children and families ministry with very chaotic families when I had no experience of that in my background, um, was a risk. But, um, Also across the board, I mean, one of one of our most touching moments in St. Paul's was um, when uh, the caretaker who was the caretaker while we were there, um, who had had an extremely hard life um, and he had been a homeless heroin addict. um, And he he went up on stage and he talked about um, his life, basically, and how um, he'd been homeless for years and years and years. And that he went into recovery, basically, because if he carried on, he was going to die. Um, and he just talked about, and he said this sentence, which he said, I was homeless for 10 years, and now I have the keys to the church. <laughs> wow. And I, for me, not only is that an incredible story of his personal re- um, story of restoration and redemption that's so yeah. moving, But also just shows the willingness to take risks on people that St Paul's were willing to have. Yeah,
1: I think the leadership, uh, the leader of the church at the moment, would also say that his predecessor, although none of the crazy chaotic things happened with his predecessor, his predecessor like laid a foundation of um, expecting God to move and being quite entrepreneurial. So I guess that whole kind of taking risks, Mm. but actually, if you want to do something, if you come to me and tell me, god said we should do this then i'll say to you then go and do it um and i trust you and i'll help you but you go and do it because god's called you to do it rather than the leadership always doing everything Mm. and i think that's kind of flowed through how the church is and Mm. you can see it in the people who've been at the church for a very long time um because a lot of the congregation is very free flowing, as you can imagine, with quite chaotic lives. But there are people who've been there for years and years and years and you can and they are just steadfast and sometimes confused maybe about what's going on. Or even I remember we had some transformation in the church done and there was a quote from um, a lady who says, I don't like it, but I support it. And that kind of was the way that the um, older generation of the church sort of ran with things. Um, you need
0: more people like that.
1: I know <laughs> that would be so great. Um, yeah. And that allowed a lot of stuff to happen in church and a lot of risks to be taken.
2: Yeah. In, in taking those risks with people as well, the, um, the model that that was kind of summarized as was we go for, um, high accountability, low control. So it would be that we, we want to hold our leaders, people who are launching things, people who are running ministries want to hold them really accountable on their personal discipleship with Jesus. And then if we know that their relationship with Jesus is thriving, um, that they are trusting him, that they're depending on him, then do what he's telling you to do and just do it. Just go for it. Like no, one's going to be checking up on like how you're doing it. Just, just go for it.
0: Which unfortunately can be the opposite, can't it? Of a lot of church leadership of, and it's really hard, isn't it? To let go of control ultimately and to let people run with stuff. Um, yeah it's so that is yeah that is so inspiring and um uh, i guess like one of the things, other things that was sort of bubbling in my mind um then uh, was i guess st paul's is like one of these churches that can that can sometimes be a really good example for the diocese of like look at all the like funky stuff we're doing yes we're serving the poor here um uh and and similar, I guess, from like the church we came from in Exeter, like people would be like, well, you know, you're doing such amazing stuff with young people and, and you must see God move. And and at the same time, we'd be like, yeah, we, we do see lots of stuff happening, but there's also plenty of stuff that we see that doesn't happen. And there isn't the transformation sometimes we look for. And and that can be really painful. Like have, have there been times where God hasn't come through in perhaps the way you expected in someone's life or, or, or didn't? step in in a certain way and like how have you handled that i guess because that's another dimension of ministry that is really hard isn't it if we're honest that the handling the unanswered prayer sometimes in people's lives
1: yeah Yeah. i think um one of the main things i saw um being on the pcc the joy of that was actually it was quite fun at some pools it wasn't um but just kind of finances um and the working with and potentially not always positively as well as negatively with the diocese on finances and that kind of side of stuff and kind of expecting God just to show up because it was like well this ministry is obviously amazing so come on God support it I think it's great I think it's what Jesus wants and actually that not always coming through in the way we expected um, or holding events that we thought were amazing and some events St Paul's held were amazing but then sometimes people didn't show up or it rained and we lost loads of money on it and it's like but god, surely this is a good idea and it's worked before and so like learning to move where god flows rather than where we think he's going was one big thing we had to do
2: yeah i think i'd i'd show like a story of someone that um we we ministered to and alongside um for this which, which i think kind of unpacks a situation like this quite well i mean I'm, I'm going to refer to him as Bob. That's not his actual name, but we'll go with Bob. Yeah, so Bob um, came to St Paul's having gone through a um, recovery house. He had um, extreme PTSD from his time in the armed forces. Um, before the armed forces, he had um, been quite highly connected in the organised crime world um, with a kind of international organised crime group. Um, which he was reconnected with following his time in the military Um, and he also um, self-medicated his PTSD with heroin. Um, So he'd gone through a recovery house for that Um, and some of the recovery houses have had a really good relationship with St Paul's because when you're in recovery it's kind of like voluntarily going into prison because they they don't want you to go out because you know, in the early stages of recovery, it can be too much. So St. Paul's was one of the places where once you'd worked a certain amount of your program, you would be allowed to go out for like, to go to church for two hours. Um, so he, he came along to church and, and through that, he actually accepted an invitation onto Alpha, um, where he had an incredible encounter with the Holy Spirit on Alpha. Um, and through the next kind of few months we we had a, a like a crazy um exciting rapid very deep very powerful um journey of discipleship with him and um he just went from strength to strength and and he kind of the the gospel was just being made so apparent in his life um it was beautiful to see and then um at the start of this academic year at college actually i um i knew he wasn't doing quite as well Um, I knew that he'd kind of, he, he'd taken a step back from church for a few reasons. Um, and and then I had a load of missed calls from him. And when I, when I tried to get back to him, I couldn't get through to him for ages. In the end, I was like, come on, mate, I'm getting quite worried now. Like, is everything all right? And I got a text to say, um, unfortunately he'd had a, um, a bit of a blip in his discipleship. He'd started using, he, he'd been in a bit of a brawl. Um, and he was going back to prison for three years. Um, which, um, was, was where he'd been before he went into recovery. He came out of prison and, and went mm-hmm. through a recovery program, um, which was just devastating. And I think it's so, um, so hard to process that. And, and it like, I guess it's the flip side of the coin with radical transformation sometimes comes like radical crashing out. Mm-hmm. And we see, or with um, with relapses um, where where people um, just get slightly too overburdened, um, and suddenly it, it all goes to pot very quickly, mm-hmm. and, and that is really hard to handle. Um, but I think God taught me something through that um, that is like really intrinsic to to the call cool that we would express, um, and really powerful. So when when Bob came to faith. I'd been praying afterwards saying, oh my word, God, that is so incredible. Like he was like a big time mobster and now he's like, he's a disciple who loves Jesus. Isn't that like the most amazing transformation? And God kind of like gently, like he does, was like, what on earth are you talking about? It's like the exact same thing that happened in your heart when you came to faith. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, that was a really powerful moment of like stripping away all the worldly stuff and just being like, like we are, we are not in Christ until we are. And that is equally beautiful every time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I think that, that taught me a lot about um, working with the poor and the call to do that, in that um, when this all went horribly wrong, um, I have no doubt that Bob is still a disciple of Jesus. I have no doubt that he still knows what Jesus has accomplished for him um, that all his strength can be found in Christ and that God loves him more than, um, words could express. I have no doubt that he knows that. Um, and I pray for him constantly for his discipleship journey to continue in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, because basically what God has shown me is that, um, when I have a discipleship blip, when I stop talking to God for a few days, um, when I decide that I'm going to do life in my own strength rather than in Christ's, no one would notice. Mm. Maybe Hannah might after a while, but initially no one would notice because the, like my education, my class, my like emotional intelligence just covers it up. Even if I'm not choosing it to, it just does because you know, I'm just a, like an ordinary guy and, and everything looks relatively normal to everyone else. But that's just not the case for people like Bob. Like, as soon as Jesus isn't his everything, he is just pulled back into chaos immediately. And so, I just that reinforced for me that the lack of justice in it—that it's unfair that that should be like that. I shouldn't be able to get away with taking my eyes off Jesus, um, and and he shouldn't like be just totally bereft when he does. Um, and I think that's how I deal with that. That um, it's the same journey of faith that we all walk, but the peaks and troughs just look a lot bigger when you're uh, dealing with people who live that kind of chaotic life. Mm.
0: Mm. And like you say, I guess like for us, uh, it's yeah, your, your your brokenness isn't so obvious. Like you say, like your emotional intelligence or just like the way you go about your day can easily cover it up. But there still can be massive turmoil going on within. The, with insecurities or yeah whatever Mm -hmm. like yeah that's such a helpful way and i think
2: and i actually think it's been the privilege of a lifetime to work with people who can't hide that you either know that they're in a beautiful place with god or you know that they're not Mm -hmm. and i think like that is the discipleship that i love to see and that is the discipleship that's so exciting for us i think isn't it yeah i
1: was listening i'm listening at the moment to pete Greg's book Dirty Glory. And I literally today actually listened to a bit um, where he's discussing kind of discipleship in Ibiza, basically, um, and how what discipleship looks like for us. So the steps of, oh, I come to church, I get to know about Jesus, I turn my life to Jesus, and then I gradually sort my life out. And then I get to do leadership, maybe if I've sorted my life out enough, which is kind of the trajectory that sometimes we can look at. When with people with chaotic lives, actually, that might not be the best just discipleship and how um, in the 24-7 prayer movement and they ended up with um, leaders whose life definitely from our perspective was not sorted out but actually the justice in that wasn't right. Just to say well you've got to stop that job or you've got to stop doing that before anything else can happen because that had massive ramifications on their life and I think sometimes being amongst people who aren't the same as us in different ways and help you reflect on what discipleship actually does look like and what Jesus is calling us to do, which isn't always black and white.
0: And I guess uh, the other thing I was thinking was um, uh, in terms of how St. Paul's has clearly shaped you in terms of your thinking approach to ministry, theology, all this stuff that we've been talking about. Um, how, what, what do you think, uh saint paul's has done and is doing that the rest of the church needs to start emulating because there's some powerful stuff that has been going on that perhaps other churches can't see or don't do or
1: yeah um i think one of the things that i've been thinking about a lot recently is how sometimes churches can be a bit of an island in a community rather than of the community And one of the things I think St. Paul's did really well was it was of the community. It had people from all walks of life, from the community around it. It didn't really look any different to Western did in terms of diversity. It kind of matched Western in its diversity. And it served the community it had and it celebrated the community it had. Um, And that meant that people um, felt at home there. I think lots of different people felt at home there. Um, And also we saw quite a lot that Um, with people in recovery and not in recovery um, spiral backwards a bit in perhaps their journey um, in what they were doing. And they could be kind of completely off the rails, so to speak, but then feel very welcomed back. So like the prodigal son story, um, church would just welcome them back there'd be no question of but you did this and you did this and you disrespected this and we haven't seen you for months and can we ever trust you again none of that was a question because we were just the community and so they were just completely welcomed back as if they'd never been gone and the best thing about that was that they felt they could come back they didn't feel like they'd be judged when they walked in and I think sometimes I see in churches that they have very, they're very much like Yes, the community can join us if they fit in with how we do things. Or we'll do a couple of outreach programmes that kind of look more community-like, but the rest of the stuff we keep to ourselves, or we have to make them look like how we think they should look, rather than just the church looking like the community around it, but just with God's kingdom breaking in at the same time. Mm. Um, I think that that would transform some churches, I think, and the communities around them.
0: And the, the, so the welcoming back stuff, the prodigal stuff, I think is particularly powerful. Like, do you feel like that came quite naturally for St. Paul's? Because I think most most churches, I suspect, would struggle, wouldn't they? If someone walks away or, or quite publicly does something, I don't know, that yeah, isn't very good. The church
2: we had once.
0: Yeah. Oh man, okay <laughs> you know to, to that that requires a work of God in us as much as anything else, like yeah, how was that a journey for the congregation to get to that point of being like, "Yeah, welcome back, great
2: <laughs> yeah, I think so, and I think it um it was a journey of like always always remaining raw personally and always remaining humble, I think in that. Um, yeah, and acknowledging that we all stray, and some stories just look more extreme than others. I think. Mm. Um. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think it's getting to know people personally. Like, I think there's that there, as we're talking. Obviously, it's amazingly positive stuff we're saying, and I think St Paul's has a long way to go on some stuff as well. But there's there were relationships built between completely different members of the church. There didn't mm. seem to be too many kind of factions and things like that. So when someone walked away or came back, well, when they came back, everyone celebrated like it was a long lost brother, son, sister, mother, because you all kind of were related to them in in quite a church family way. Mm. Um, and I I think there's quite a lot they can do to make that even better at St Paul's. I think sometimes mm. there can be division. Um, but yeah, that was one of the main things that I think supported. That was everyone felt like they were one family.
2: Mm. And I think that's sorry, one of the Michael. things that the church did that, that was astounding and, and the, the national and global church should look like is the diversity in the congregation. Like Hannah said, they, they weren't like factional. You, you would have a gang member sat next to a judge who was sat next to a nurse who was sat next to someone who used to be a prostitute.
1: I've just remembered a great story. We had some baptisms once in the evening. So our evening service was very young adulty, quite recovery heavy as well, quite loud music, lights, all that sort of stuff. Um, Our 9.30 congregation, which was the earliest one, were mainly older generation, much more traditional, although still quite relaxed in St. Paul's way, but quite more traditional. And there are always these set of kind of three or four ladies who sat quite near the front row at the 9.30. They'd always be there, um, always kind of, yeah, offering support for the church and prayer, but kind of very much older ladies liking their hymns and their liturgy. And then we had this baptism service in the evening, and I we stood up, and I think I was leading it, and I looked out, and they were just like, they came so early to get, like, front seats. Oh, <laughs> seven o'clock evening service where most of the people being baptized were um in recovery and all sorts of bonkers chaotic lives and they were there to like cheer them on and see them be baptized and that that yeah that was an amazing moment for us Mm. Mm.
0: that's so good and um i guess my my final question to you both was going to be about something that josh said actually just in passing recently which was just that your hearts are that the gospel would be for the poor and that the church would wake up to the radical call um, to make that the objective, basically. Um, And with the trajectory, almost, that St. Paul's has put you on, like, where do you feel this is, you know, where do you feel God is leading you next, I suppose? And not that we're into creating dream curacies, but if you could have somewhere where you're like, to be able to do this would fit in so nicely with what we feel called to do? Like, What would that look like?
2: I think we would um, articulate a call to those who have no worldly hope as well as no spiritual hope. Mm. Um, I think God has just really put on both of our hearts um, a call to those who don't stand a chance in the world as well as don't stand the chance on the scales against God's grace. Um,
1: Yeah, I think for me, um, as part of, I don't know what God's going to call me to next. I feel like it's a very distinct get this year group through to the end of year 11. And then I don't have a clue what he's got for me next. But I know that one of those things is about about seeing communities and people kind of flourishing the way God has created them to be. Um, so whatever that looks like whether that's me I I don't know I have no idea basically which is amazing and really fun but I've seen a lot of stuff with my head of year role of supporting families with early help with social care um, kids being excluded from school um, support for families who don't really know how to parent they they don't have the confidence to parent in Mm. in a positive way um For families who've moved into the area and don't really know what's going on, not being quite lost, and all that stuff together, and I just think there's something so crucial about a community. And if if a community was acting in the way God intended it to, what would that look like? Um, And I think so. A a dream curacy for me would be somewhere that allowed us to experience, or maybe even kickstart, what it looked like for a church to be kind of that place of community for the community.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry. A lot lot of it comes down as well, um, in I think what we feel called to, to like, to fighting against injustice, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Brian Stevenson is a personal hero of mine, and I love his quote that the opposite of poverty isn't wealth, it's justice. Hmm. And I think what what God really burned into our hearts while we were in Western and and previously as well was that. Poverty is unjust in that, you know, someone's birth circumstance to the like the economic power of the family that they're born into, to being in a low income, low aspiration area, um, basically just shuts doors in their face and, and points them down other very dangerous and unhealthy doors um, mm-hmm. and that's unjust. And like God is the only one who can write that can write that systemic injustice. Mm-hmm think so um like Hannah saying we our dream curacy would be not only um to provide the hope of Christ in that situation but but through Christ and his work in the spirit to um fight for those people to have the best in education the best in family the best marriages the best parenting um the best in the arts that like to just to fight for them to have those systemic injustices corrected And I think like Hannah says, that's the whole community thing. Like we want the church to be the heart of the community and the community to be the heart of the church, I think. Mm.
0: Oh, thank you so much for sharing. Like, yeah, I just, yeah, particularly moving, um, but also just so exciting about hearing your journey through St Paul's and where that's sending you now and, and taking, I suppose, like the DNA that you've picked up from them and, taking it somewhere else um thank you so much for sharing so honestly and and being vulnerable um do listen to the next episode uh but to hannah and josh thank you very much and we'll see you guys soon bye cheers